Welcome to Heels in the Courtroom, a podcast about successfully navigating law and life, featuring the women trial attorneys at the Simon Law Firm. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. Today, I have Megan Crow, Erica Slater, and Liz Lenevy. Hello, ladies. Hey. Hello. Today, our topic is going to be direct examination of experts. So this would be direct examination at trial of our witnesses, our physicians, economists, biomechanical engineers, you name it, the folks that make our case as far as liability and causation is typically concerned and damages for that matter. So this topic came up, of course, because I'm currently preparing a direct examination of an expert for trial. So why not? And I usually start, of course, with the basics. Go back. I read every memo of every conversation I've ever had with the expert. So let's just say, for example, I've got an expert orthopedic surgeon. So I would go back and read the first conversation I ever had with that person to remember little things that maybe I've forgotten along the way, whether it was the date that we first talked, where I found that expert, our first conversation about his life or his practice or anything like that, just to get my mind set on the chronology of the relationship. And then, of course, I make sure I know exactly what documents and records and materials have been sent to this expert and when. I read the pre-deposition memo that I typically do in the file or any notes that I've written, as well, of course, as the deposition itself. And I take all of those materials together and just sift through it and digest it. I always then set a meeting with this expert prior to trial. It's a good idea to have a conversation with this expert a week or so before trial, And then again, of course, true prep the night before that expert goes on the stand. Now, the best thing about that is by the time that expert is in town at your conference table, you know your case and you know exactly what this person needs to say to help you convince the jury that you're right. And you have to sit down and go through the script of the direct. So Erica... I think because of your experience, you're probably saying like, oh, you know, it's nice to talk to them the week before. But I find that essential because I am too nervous to wait until the end because I'm worried I'm going to be missing something. And also the kind of pre-trial conference with your expert, either while you're writing your direct or maybe you have a script out there that you're working through. That helps your expert zero in on their prep that they're going to most likely do on a plane while they're coming to you for trial. So I find that helpful as far as organizing thoughts and making sure to get it out on paper. Once you've drafted your direct, do you send it to the expert to review? Well, um, the most recent case you and I just tried, I did not, but I went over it with them in detail. And I didn't send it to them because I didn't want either of us to get too tied to it. Right. And my prep, which has been every legal thing I've ever done. So this is the same way I made my outlines, the same way I prep my direct for an expert, same way I make a depot outline, is the actual task of making the outline or preparing the direct is my study. 
mm-hmm. if you will. Yes. So by the time I'm done with the outline, I now know it better than using the outline as a crutch. I put clips of exhibits that I want to use in there because my eyes catch the exhibits so much more yes. when you're up there and you're maybe shaking off some nerves. Maybe it's difficult content. Maybe you're wanting to make sure how cleanly the evidence comes in and how easy it is to understand because you've been working with a case for two, three years at this point, especially if we're talking about like a medical expert or an engineering expert and all this terminology and, you know, how it works or what the procedure is, is all in the back of your and every other lawyer's head. So to then artfully explain that to the jury from the get-go, you kind of have to remove yourself from all of the information and look at it with new eyes. So doing that and having a outline prepared and sticking enough to the format helps me get through the content better. But I try not to stick to the outline and don't want my expert to be too stuck to it too. And I find that once you're kind of giving them the bullet point of like, we're talking about this topic, then I want to talk about this, then I want you to teach them about this. And you don't want to make them so nervous that they're worried they're going to say something, you know, the wrong way or get too caught up on something. There's probably like maybe two or three things that like, you have to hit this hard. And this is the most important part of the case. So the way you describe this needs to be very clear and exact. And if you can drill those like high level things in and then be like, I want you to teach about X, Y, Z, then I think that that's a good way to use the outline and really use preparing your direct outline for your own study. Megan, what is your routine for preparing direct exam of experts? I actually would say it's pretty similar to what Erica does. I am also a person who learns by the making of an outline. I make a pretty structured outline with exhibits and exactly where I want to do them. I don't always stick to it, but since I'm pretty early in my career, I would say I probably stick to my outlines more so than people have been a little bit more comfortable doing this for longer. But it's funny, Amy, when you were introducing this topic, you said something about a script. And when I think of a really good direct of an expert, I think of it as a performance or a dance. It's a very kind of eloquent thing where I'm anticipating what they're going to say. They know where I'm going next. And without it being too actually scripted or too rigid in sticking to an outline, I think the best directs of experts are this kind of dance where you know where each other are going. And that really comes through having a good outline. And I usually go over with the expert in a phone call before the exact things that I'm going to show them as exhibits. And we'll walk through it. I think effective ones, too, I've done with giant blown up posters as, you know, exhibits. And I'll say, like, this is when we're going to use this and this is when I'm going to use this exhibit. And so they know exactly what's coming. So when they take a look at the exhibit, it's not I have to sit here and read it, figure out what I'm looking at. Right. You know, it just so eloquently flows. And I think that makes for a really effective expert direct. And so that's how I prepare is kind of almost like a script and definitely, definitely put emphasis on using the documents that I want to show because that kind of guides how the rest of it flows. Yeah, I will say I draft a script. It's an outline, but it's my script. And I don't send it to my expert because I don't want Erica, as you said, that person to be wedded to it. But one of us needs to be. One of us needs to be wedded to the script 
but allow flexibility for it to kind of run off the script a little bit. But if you forget something simple because it's not on the piece of paper because you're in the moment, such as the definition of standard of care or the definition of what product defect actually means or cause to contribute to cause, these elements of your case then that's a problem. So my scripts are sometimes 30, 40 pages for a direct exam that may not last more than an hour, but that's because of my inability to trust that I'm going to remember it. (laughs) There's just too much going on. So as you say, it has to be in there. I may not need it, but it's my crutch too. Because by the time you're trying the case and you're putting your main expert on, or even one of your experts, I know almost every word on those 40 pages. But I have to be able to flow through it. And that's my favorite part of the direct exam of experts, which sometimes can be kind of a boring part of the case. It's not cross-exam, it's not closing argument, but it is the meat of the case where we get to teach the jury what the science is that will allow them to find in our favor. And I tell almost every expert that I put on the stand, look, you're a teacher today. You're a professor. Look at these folks. And I guess we can talk about whether we should actually want them to turn and look at the jury because I think it's weird. I think the jury, it's a little off-putting sometimes. But I tell them if you're naturally that kind of person, a teacher, you can turn, use your hands, whatever it is. If you're naturally that way, then it's not going to look weird. If you're turning and looking at me and then you have to do almost you know, a 180 to talk to the jury. That's weird, folks. So just, you know, use your best judgment for that. But I want that person not to even feel like they are the advocate, because that's my job. I want that person to be the teacher, the educator. I want the jury to believe that person's not the advocate. I'm the advocate. That person is merely here to teach them what they need to know to do the best job on the case. Megan, you bring up a good point talking about like the exchange with an expert in front of the jury as like a dance. One of the things that you get from good, solid prep with your expert, especially when you're going through, like you said, I mean, the meat of the case and having to get the information in the record and in front of the jury that you need to prove your case, you want to be able to almost like say one, maybe two words to like keep them going. And it's easy to get frustrated up on the stand if you haven't done that prep because you're standing up there thinking, I need you to say this next. And if you can't ask a question that isn't overly suggestive of the answer, it starts to look too much like the advocate is stepping in over the teacher's presentation, if you will. So the more you can prep with your expert and they understand where you're going, you won't have to say a lot to get them to pitch up that next topic. Yeah, I've prepped experts before and kind of instructed them, I'm going to ask this question, and it may seem broad, and you could probably go in a lot of different areas with that, but this is the information that I'm looking for when I ask this question next. And so kind of try and narrow their focus in the prep so then in the moment, like you said, Erica, you can say few words and they know what you kind of are getting at. It just comes out cleaner, too, because, I mean— I can think of, you know, the two or three times in my last trial, I was trying to suggest like, hey, need you to talk about this next, but maybe I didn't really 
prepare you enough for that. Please and, read my mind. Please yeah, read my mind right now. Please read my mind. And, <laughs> and my gosh, stop looking at your papers and look at my eyes yeah. right now so I can tell you with my eyes exactly what I need you to say. Well, that's another good point. What do you send your expert to the stand with? What materials, if any, do you want your expert to have in front of him or her? Liz? I'm trying to think of a time that I've ever sent my expert up with anything other than a laser pointer. Yeah, <laughs> I think the answer should be nothing. Because, Erica, your point, when they're looking for the answer, they're not answering or they look like they're searching for the truth versus just, you know, a fact on a piece of paper. And sometimes I can cure that because it's not a memory test per se. If your case has a lot of chronology or something like that, I sometimes put up a timeline. Everybody needs to be on the same chronology. I'll throw it up there again, not only to help the expert, but also to remind the jury, because almost always timelines are good for us. Almost always the way things happen and when things get missed and how much time went between this, that, and the other, at least the when I get done with the timeline, <laughs> it's good for us. <laughs> and that's never a bad way to get that back in front of the jury by through your expert. And it helps him or her out as well. And you're not going to get, actually, that's not true. I had an objection once to a timeline because it didn't have everything in it. I mean, like everything that ever happened during this six-day hospital stay or whatever. And it really was unfortunate because the way the objection was made suggested that I was being untruthful and leaving out some important things. So I've never forgotten that. And when I do my timeline, the first time I introduce it to the jury, whether it's an opening or with my expert or my client or whomever, I say, these are the relevant dates. And I will also cite the page number of the medical record that I get it from so they don't think I'm just making it up. So, you know, you live and learn. But anyway, I think less is better. Now, if this is a brand new expert and they're just really, they've got one page of key facts, key bullet points or whatever, then I guess I'm okay with it. But the other part is the defense attorney could get up and say, what do you got there, doc? Like, what are you reading from? And that could be a problem. So I think less I don't think they should have anything. I like the laser point. That's a good. The other thing is if you send someone up there with a bunch of stuff in front of them, and you mentioned it, them looking down, like they're trying to search for the answer. And I also think that that can be a natural response if you're in a position where you're nervous. I mean, right. you're facing in front of people. And if you have an inexperienced expert or someone who's maybe just naturally more introverted, that may be their go-to move is to just look down. And if they have something in front of them, then they've got an excuse to look down as opposed to looking at the jury. And I want my expert to make eye contact with the jury because the way that I look at it, the expert's role is to act as the teacher or the mm -hmm. professor. And I tell them, look at these jurors as students. Yes. You are in a lecture hall right now and you are teaching them. And you know why you're teaching them? Because you're showing them facts. I want them to forget that you are a retained expert and that you are being paid for That's your time goal. and technically paid for your testimony. I want them to look at you as someone who came in here and is just trying to show the facts as they exist. And that is why we win, because the facts are on our side. Right. I get your point about sometimes it's a little awkward if they're in the teaching mode, but I think the best direct examinations of experts I've seen are the ones where they get off the stand. That's next. Yeah. yeah. One more thing on if you have a nervous expert, I will tell them, look at me. If you're nervous, just look at me. I am your happy place. I am the safe place. 
I know what your answer should be, and I will guide you as gently as I can to that answer. I can't give you the answer, but at this point, we should be well enough along in the process, and you should know. I mean, this is your science. This is your life. You know these answers. I'm just suggesting an order in which they should be provided. But look at me, and I'll get you there. And that, I think, just brings a comfort level. Whether I can actually do that, who the hell knows? But the point is, they think I can, so they're going to trust you. But the best direct examinations are when I can move around, the expert can move around, some exhibits are coming up, things are just moving. And it feels very much, Megan, as you'd said before, just this eloquent dance of information flowing. So what are some ways to get the expert up out of the chair? So ways to get your expert out of the chair, in front of the jury, sort of movement about the well, is if you can incorporate into their direct, maybe use of a flip chart or a whiteboard, something where they can sit there and actually write on it, almost like what a professor does with a chalkboard, right? right? We all have that image still in our brain of middle school where we had our teacher up there writing the lessons out in front of us, again, because it's fact. That's what the teacher is teaching us. And so I think that those are the best ones. If they can stand up there and write out their opinions or whatever it is out. I'm also thinking about one in particular, Amy, the Frazier case from a couple months ago, where the neurology expert actually got up there and just oh, drew yes. a diagram of what the cross sections of the spine look like and sort of colored it in. And he was able to just break it down so simply for the jury. And I think that that's even better sometimes than what we might be able to find medical illustrations on Google or something, because those are very complicated because they are more technical. They're made for medical students or whoever is looking at them, not typically just your standard jury. But when an expert is able to get up there and draw just a really simple diagram that just breaks it down for the jury and they see how everything is sort of built out because they're seeing it happen in real time. I think that that helps bring it down to a, a juror's level of understanding something complicated like neurosurgery. I think having experts move around too is really important because like you said earlier, Amy, sometimes the science can get really boring and it's a boring part of the case and jurors can start nodding off during this complicated scientific testimony. And I think it's a lot harder for a jury to start zoning out or getting sleepy if there's physical movement in the courtroom. And so I've done it certainly in cases where it wasn't really necessary. For example, I had a case where several nerves in the arm were damaged. And so I had a giant poster board of just a diagram of the different nerves in the arm blown up and used it with the expert where he, in the very beginning of his testimony, asked just to give a brief overview of what their functions were. And I had the poster board and he didn't have to get up and point to them. He could have just explained them or used a laser pointer, but he was like, may I, you know, point to them? Can I get up? And so that was the first time he got up and then sat back down. And then later when we were getting into more of the mechanism of injury, he got up again and pointed and remember when we were talking about this one and made another reference and, and stood up to the poster board. I could have done that all on a PowerPoint slide or really didn't even need a demonstrative for that. But it was, I think, helpful to keep the jury engaged just by the physical movement in the courtroom. Absolutely. I've noticed that whenever the witness stands up, I can see the jurors kind of shifting in their seats of, oh, oh I need to wake up yeah, a little bit more. Some important's happening. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine sitting there all day with three breaks just watching what's happening with no control over it. I, I mean, these we poor take that people. so for granted. I know. And you're so like connected to like, oh, I'm doing something now. And yeah. like your jury might be sitting there like, okay, 
Like, can't wait until the lunch break when I can uh, respond to my text messages. Well, that <laughs> reminds me of a topic we talked about a number of months ago from my research on listening, Kate Murphy's book on listening, where she says there are mandated every 90 minutes for air traffic controllers to take a break. And for people like, and that's because after 90 minutes, you can't really pay attention very well. You need a break. You need to get up. And I know in trial, we try real hard. You know, a lot of judges are really keen on breaks every 90 minutes or so. But if the judge isn't in charge of it, then you really need to be aware. If you're going straight from one witness to another, there's a little bit of a break. But you got to be clearly aware of what happens next to keep their attention going and to respect that attention. And that's part of the prep that I do with experts is like, we're not going to be on the stand six hours here, buddy. I know that we could talk about this for this long. You've got years and years and years of schooling and lots of information, but we got to stay high level. We have to respect their time and stay focused. But also, I am very diligent and earnest about telling them you know, this is more than just you're going to get up there and tell your story and leave. This is my client's case. I need you to be as committed as I am to the success of this case. And I know you're not the advocate. You can't openly be the advocate. But do you see this client? This client's success in this case is largely going to be what comes out of your mouth. I need you to feel that, to know that, to respect that. And I do it that way, not because they weren't already thinking about that, but sometimes this expert testimony, you know, it can be for these experts, particularly if they do a fair amount of it, it's just another job. It's just another job, another way to advance their professional skills, you know, a little bit different than being in the operating room or being in the clinic. And I think sometimes it's easy to forget why you're there. We're here to win, of course, and you need to do a good job, but it's because this person right here is injured. I think it's very compelling to remind the witnesses things that we live every day, which is why we do this. It's the pregame prep talk. Yeah, that's it's right. It's what the coach does, right? Mm -hmm. Just to get your blood pumping a little bit, because the last thing you want is them to get up there and just not look like they care. Yeah. Because if they don't care, why should the jury care? So true. In, in that case that we tried a couple months ago, I remember having that conversation with one or several of our experts about saying, look, all I really need from you right now is for you to tell me you care about this client and you care about the outcome of this case. And it was kind of like, well, of course I do. And I'm like, no, I need an affirmative. No, I'm sorry. That's when you bang the table. <laughs> yeah. Did I do that? I probably did. Yes. <laughs> I might have done that. Was that at the dinner table? I'm pretty sure I did that. I'm yeah. literally thinking of three different instances in <laughs> okay. my mind, and it was very effective. Okay. Because so I remembered it <laughs> in the moment, and I was like, whoa, all right, I'm paying attention now, too. And sometimes I do it when we're a little bit, not to catch them off guard, but and I don't mean to say that that's not their first thought or that's not their first goal, but there's never anything wrong. Because again, y'all, we have this privilege of being able to affect change in our clients' lives for the better. We have that privilege. And the people we take on the journey with us, including these experts, need to also share that and believe that.
And again, not that they don't, but there ain't nothing wrong with reminding them. I think that it's also important to have that conversation early on in the case, too. I find that if you start out the relationship with the expert with a really enthusiastic view of your case, the expert's going to take that on 100%. I've had a lot of experts get so hyped about my cases, and it it makes you more excited about the case as well. And you're explaining to something, and the expert's going, wow, that's crazy. And then, you know, even if they say that to everyone, if they seem to me like they're getting really excited about this case, then it makes me more excited about the case. And then throughout our relationship, working on the case together, I think we hype each other up. That's right. It's not a bad idea to, and I suggest doing this early on when you retain the expert, but you know, you're going to send the expert the information or the records or whatever it is to have them review and then give their opinions. It's also important to ask why they testify. Uh Plaintiff's attorneys are often paid on a contingency fee. Defense attorneys are often paid hourly. And experts are always paid hourly. So the outcome, they're going to get paid no matter the outcome of the case. Exactly. We don't get paid unless we win the case, which obviously has a motivating factor to how diligently and hard you work on your case because you don't get a W in your column until a trial is over. There's no like, oh, yeah, we've already won the case. Now we can sit back. That never happens until you get a verdict. And learning the expert's motivation for why they do it And tapping into that, do they have an altruistic perspective on why they testify? If it's because it's good money, fine. Maybe you should know that. Then they are invested in being a good, solid expert who is beyond reproach in all sworn testimony because maybe they testify a lot. And that's fine, too. But knowing that motivation is a good way to tap into why they should care about what they're about to do. And I sometimes start that with, how'd you get started in this? And sometimes it's, well, my partner used to do it and got tired of doing it. And sometimes it's, I got sued and I got interested in the process and I understand how this is a check on the system and it makes me a better doctor for having reviewed other doctors' errors. That's a good story. So knowing that story is also very important and it might help a jury. Because all they see is somebody who's getting paid a bunch of money to sit there and talk to them. For one side or the other. Right. Yeah. Exactly. What about demonstrative evidence? I know we talked about writing on flip charts and that kind of thing. Good, bad? Love demonstratives. Love them. I want as many demonstratives. If I could just have like a whole skeleton up there, I would. (laughs) You can. You can. I think there's one in our evidence room. (laughs) No, should bring that out. (laughs) I mean, I've told the story in the podcast before, but I had a case one time where there was a serious knee injury and our orthopedic surgeon, we got him a knee. Mm-hmm. And our orthopedic surgeon went up there and the way that this injury happened sort of snapped this woman's knee back in a way that knees aren't supposed to bend. And he got up there and it was loud in the courtroom. He snapped our demonstrative back and he goes, sorry, I can't go any further to show you what happened to Miss So-and-so because it would break your demonstrative. But the jury gets it. And <laughs> the like, jury yeah. got it because I could see them all <laughs> cringing. And I was like, all right, they understand the severity yeah. of this injury now. They get it. Which was wonderful because part of the defense was trying to downplay how bad that injury was. But when they got up there and they watched a man who went to medical school say, I can't break this thing. I mean, that was very effective. And again, going back to the Frazier trial, Amy, you had the actual device that we Mm -hmm. said caused the injury and actually showing it. Showing it to the jury, it looks kind of scary. It's totally scary. And the best part was the tip of that 
perfectly matched yeah. the imaging. I'm sure it wasn't to scale, but somehow it, the scale turned out to be perfect. There, let me fit this puzzle piece together for you. It was, that was actually legit. That was a key. You bought I it bought on Amazon. Or yeah, you yeah. Get anything, yeah. Get anything on Amazon. You know, I think we have every joint, including yep. a couple brains in our evidence room yep. <laughs> that Eyeballs. we use as demonstratives. I had um, a treater's deposition one time. It was a spine surgery and I brought a spine to the deposition and I laid the spine down on the table and I said, doctor, can you show us how you do the surgery? Oh, what yeah. levels we were at? What yeah. are we messing with here? What happened? And sure enough, he went in and he was like, okay, we're going to go into these levels and this is what you have to do. And you take out this part and then you put it. And watching him do that, I'm pretty sure I went... Oh, oh. <laughs> totally. I've read this note so many times, but now that you've walked me through it and shown me, I actually understand what you're doing and what happened in this surgery. Yeah, it's amazing just how visual learners in conjunction with people who know what they're talking about, explaining things on a simple level. If I can be taught <laughs> all the stuff that I've learned over the years we can teach the jury these things as well. And that's the overall goal of an expert witness is to teach the jury your case and to give them the tools to find in your favor. Well, I just want to wrap up a little bit with a few steps, I think, that we've talked about that would be good for our listeners who are interested in doing a direct exam of an expert. Start early, do an outline, my advice, and I think the consensus here is to do a very thorough script-like outline that you can look at or not look at by the time you get to trial, but at least you have it in front of you. And that outline needs to include very specific, the definition of standard of care, the definition of product defect, whatever element of your case you must establish with this expert needs to be word for word wrote in your outline. I always, with respect to standard of care, I'll say, now, doctor, do you agree with me this is the definition of standard of care? Yes. And you believe that this defendant breached or fell below the standard of care in ABC three, four, five ways, right? Right. And I lead them through that. Usually I can get them through it. And then you also believe that each and every one of these breaches of standard of care caused or contributed to cause harm. Is that correct? Yes. Let's talk about why you feel that way. That way, the element, it's in the case. I am surviving a directed verdict. I'm not going to forget that. And then and you're not going to get an objection if you go through it just like that. You might, but that would be silly. And you headline for the jury so they know where we are. Exactly. Yeah. And then you go through all the exhibits, all of the demonstrative, prompt them to get up, give them the laser pointer, everything you do, and then the wrap up, which is where I go back and restate the key points again. So I usually end just restating the elements of the claim and how it contributed to cause harm and then turn them over. Well, it's the the idea of the first thing you hear and the last thing you hear are the things that stick with you the best. So yes. make sure you hit the most important parts of your case first and last. That's it. All right, ladies. Well, thank you so much for the lively discussion about what sometimes can be kind of a tedious part of our job. And thanks to our listeners for joining us for another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. You can find us at heelsinthecourtroom.law. See you next week. Amy, Liz, Erica, Mary, Elizabeth, and Megan would love to hear from you. Send your thoughts to comments at heelsinthecourtroom.law. And check out other legal podcasts in the Simon Law Firm Library. The Jury is Out with John Simon focuses on lifelong learning to elevate your practice. Subscribe today.